Welcome to episode 103 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro-Allen and Dr. Todd Houston. Welcome back to another episode. Um, I wanted to give a quick tip that I have been looking into about creating rapport with online uh, students and with their families too. And I did find a great study that um, some people have been doing. Uh, it was getting connected speech and language pathologist perceptions of building rapport via telepractice. And it was in the Journal of Developmental and Physical Disabilities, I believe. And they talked about that when they did a study, they found that most people did report that they were able to establish rapport just as well via telepractice as they would in person. Mm -hmm. um, they did mention, and other resources also mentioned, some of the things that are different about establishing rapport. And a lot of them were kind of like the technical things, like making sure mm -hmm. that you're making eye contact, which in this case is looking at your camera <laughs> instead mm -hmm. of the person's face. And then having, you know, things like uh, making sure that you're making some outside communications with the families also, that it's not just the face-to-face -face that one time a week or whatever your set appointment time is, that it's really the text messages and the phone calls and the emails outside of that face-to-face -face time that really helps establish that rapport. And from my own experience with my students that are in the school, I really sometimes have to make myself remember to do this because I'm very data driven mm -hmm. is taking the time to stop and pause and ask them, you know, how they're doing. How was your weekend? A uh, question I've liked lately is like, what's your hardest class right now? What's your easiest class right now or your favorite class right now? Mm -hmm. And just taking that time to, you know, it's that, that old saying of they don't care how much they know until they know how much you care and making sure that you take the time to establish that. Oh, I think that's that's a great saying. I like that. Uh, yep. But yeah, I think always checking in. I th you know, I, I have to remind myself sometimes that you know we we want to jump right in and get that first activity going or whatever right. you know, and you know that's what we're focused on. But we got to be human too and kind of ask, well, how are you today? How are things going? You know, what's 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 new? Mm -hmm. And I have to remind myself to do that too. Right. Yeah. Um, I have a quick announcement about uh, a little notice I got from ASHA. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, they have a new teleassessment um, set of resources under the practice management and telepractice area on the website. But I saw a little blurb that came out of ASHA that they have some more materials there on teleassessment. And I took a quick peek before we got on uh the episode tonight and uh it looks pretty extensive so i was very impressed of what they're doing so if you have questions about teleassessment go to that asha page and and hopefully you can find your answers there um and so on the podcast tonight uh we have sarah douglas dr douglas she is a professor at michigan state university and she has the rad lab which is research in autism and developmental disabilities. And so she does a lot of work uh, looking at service delivery and coaching to 
those uh, those children that have additional medical needs and are using AAC. And she does a lot of work uh, coaching para providers uh, and parents, of course. So I'm excited to hear what she has to say. Hi, are you creative? Do you want to give a webinar or teach a course? Maybe you're a writer. Do you want to create a blog? Maybe you have an idea for a podcast. Whatever your passion is, we at 3C Digital Media Network want you to be a content creator so we can bring your ideas to life. So, to get started, visit our website at 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com and sign up to be a content creator. We look forward to seeing your passions come to life on our platform. So, Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Can you introduce yourself, please? Sure. My name is Sarah Douglas, and I'm an associate professor at Michigan State University, um, where I do uh, research related to telepractice. And I read your, your bio, and I see way before you became a professor, you were a special education teacher. Right? Yeah, actually, I started out in the classroom, um, special education, teaching children with more complex communication needs. Um, and that really got me interested in the best ways to kind of to reach this population, both educationally, but also in other settings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of naturally, because it's a population that you don't really have access to very easily, telepractice was a great approach for me to use both to reach people for training purposes, but also um, to allow intervention to get to the homes and the schools of those who need it the most. Right. And so just sort of staying on that for a moment, what, what led you to special ed? Did, did, did you have uh, some other experiences? <laughs> you know, initially I wanted to be a doctor, which I chuckle mm-hmm. about now because I am a doctor, but not you the doctor are. I thought I wanted to be. <laughs> um, and I was really just kind of led towards a career um, that was going to be a, maybe a better match for being a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I thought about that, um, I really was interested um, in a number of different careers. I guess I should back up too. I also did not enjoy biology very much. So it was clear <laughs> if I didn't enjoy my second yeah. class of biology, probably becoming a medical doctor was not the choice for me. Um, and so I kind of was led back to experiences that I'd had earlier in life with, um, you know, with children with disabilities and how much I enjoyed those experiences. I actually attended a school in my youth, um, most of the schools at that time. So this is like the 80s. Um, most of the children with more significant disabilities were housed in portables or in separate schools. Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of, you know, when mainstreaming started to happen, but depending on how the school was structured, it wasn't happening as much in some schools. And I went, I uh, attended a brand new school that had just been built and they put all of the special education classrooms in the center of the school. So it was right by the library. And every time we walked to different places in the school, we walked by these classrooms and there was a really forward thinking teacher and Mm -hmm. she included all of her students in our classrooms, at least a portion of the day. Um, did not matter, you know, what level they were at, where their skills were, um, even the challenging behaviors that they had. She worked to have them present. And um, at that point in time, I was living in Arizona, um, in the Phoenix area. Mm-hmm. And um, as you can imagine, recess gets very hot there. 
So the choices for recess were you could go outside um, and get super sweaty. (laughs) You could go to the library and be quiet and just read. Or this teacher gave the option for us to come and spend time in the classroom with her and the students. And so we engaged in activities like playing games and using their augmentative and alternative communication systems, cooking activities. Um, little did I know I was actually learning how to model AAC for some of the children that, that oh. I was um, the same age peer for. So that was a very clear, <laughs> mm-hmm. excellent choice for me as a child. Um, but then I learned that I really loved that population. So as I was kind of going through college and I'm like, yeah, I don't think I can do biology for you know, a million years. Right. What is it that I'm really interested in? And I was really interested in, in a helping profession Mm -hmm. in working with people um, who had kind of complex needs. And that kind of led me back into special education. Um, I I do kind of laugh about it a lot now though, because my, my husband kept asking me, are you sure you want to be a teacher? Are you sure? Because (laughs) he came from a family of teachers Mm -hmm. and he knew what the profession was like. And it's very challenging. And the day in the day out is really tiring. And I'm like, I'm sure this is what I want to do. But I think he was sort of (laughs) excited to see that I eventually decided to become a professor Um, because it's a lot of emotion, especially when you're working with that population. I, I had students who um, had very significant medical needs and Mm -hmm. would sometimes be hospitalized for long periods of time. I had more than one student who passed away. Um, So it was just emotionally, um, stressful. And I think others who work with this population can kind of relate to that. And, and anyone who's in teaching right now, I just, I really, as I reflect on my time in the classroom, I just think, wow, what teachers doing are doing right now is just incredible. Um, it is a heavy lift and Mm -hmm. I just applaud any of them (laughs) that are able to stick it out because it's, it's a lot. It it certainly is. And, and with, everything that's happened with COVID being, you know, one layer. And then unfortunately with some of the the politics uh, that are happening, the sort of cultural wars and teachers being sort of uh, caught in all of that too. It's just, you know, they can't catch a break. It seems, you know, all this stuff is, you know, just keeps hitting them and, and getting blamed. Uh, so I'm, I'm just curious, have you ever talked to that innovative teacher uh, and let her know what, what profound effect that, you know, you being allowed to go in and, and Um, when I first went into the classroom, she did know that I was becoming a teacher. Um, So she actually served as my very first practicum placement because I had to self-select it. Um, At that time I was at at a community college doing my first kind of prerequisites. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a formal sort of situation, but I was able to connect with her. And so she knew the profession that I went into. And I think my mom, because my mom still lived in that community for many years, ran into her a couple of times and kind of told her where I'd ended up. And at that point, she had, she had retired. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think she, I think she knows the, the impact that she had. But more importantly, I think it wasn't just an impact on me. It was a huge impact on those children as well. Sure. She really made a huge difference in their lives. Um, and I remember just like the situation that she set up Um, made it so that I had, um, I attended their birthday parties and, and I can Mm -hmm. just tell you, like, even as a child, I recognized that that was a really big deal for those parents. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it was a big deal for the children too, right? They were excited to see a friend from school, but it was a much bigger deal for their parents to sort of feel like, wow, like they, they have friends, they have people that want to come and celebrate, you know, their birthday. And that was Mm -hmm. something that maybe they didn't, they hadn't experienced before. So 
Yeah. yeah so those early experiences have very much influenced uh, where I've decided to go in my career and the things I've decided to to study, I guess. Yeah. So my husband teaches at a high school and he does the videoing for a lot of the sports. And this last week they did a special needs baseball game and they had the softball team and the ba- um, baseball team. And they each had were assigned to a special needs adult or student or child that was there. And it was just neat to see these like, you know, big, tough baseball players, kids on the baseball team, just being so kind and caring to the students around them. And it just, like you said, it goes both ways that it uh, benefits both populations. Yeah. I mean, definitely those kinds of experiences were were very enriching for me. And even as I went through college and um, even in the summers, actually, with that particular Mm -hmm. teacher, um, that students would have um, extended school year. I just thought it was called summer school at that point in my <laughs> life. I didn't know anything about those those specialized kind of programs. And the teacher invited my brother and I to come and be peer models for the children during summer school because there's no option for that, right? right? There's no other children going to school at ESY except for those who have pretty mm-hmm. significant needs. And I thought it was fantastic because I came from a family with seven children. My mom would drop us off in the morning <laughs> and she'd pick us up in the afternoon and that school fed us breakfast and lunch. And I thought cafeteria food was fantastic. Because again, I came from a big family and it was like, woohoo, we always have to make our lunches. And I I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. I didn't really realize like, I mean, I thought it was like a bonus for me. I had no clue that I was actually supporting and helping the students who were there. So, you know, I think those, those early experiences definitely shaped me and kind of let planted that seed in my mind of a career path that I probably wouldn't have considered without that. I think also I grew up in a community, a church community that was very inclusive of people um, with different types of disabilities. We had one um, young man in my congregation who was a year or two older than me, and he had been hit by a car um, when he was younger uh, by a drunk driver and uh, um, was paralyzed uh, from the neck down. And when it came time for him to participate in different activities at the church, they actually remodeled the church so that it was accessible to him. I didn't think that was weird at the time. I just thought that was like what you do, right? Right. But looking back in hindsight, I recognize that's really strange. And then I remember another Mm -hmm. family that I was close with and the mom had, um, like, I think it was her seventh child and... The dad was actually the OBGYN, so he delivered his own child, and wow. it turned out that she was born with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. And, like, no one at church, like, batted an eye about it. It was not a big deal. It was like, congratulations, you know? No one was like, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. That just wasn't the experience that I had growing up. So I think those early kind of inclusive experiences that I had, even though I granted in the 80s and early 90s, those were not the most really inclusive as we think about today. But at the time, right. at the time they were, um, I think they really shaped how I view disability and how how I want to support um, those in the community who have um, different different needs. Sure. So we'll we'll keep going down this memory lane here, the timeline. And so yeah. you you go back to school, you you, you become a teacher. Yep. Uh, work in the schools and then decide I'm going to go do even more, but at a university. So you yeah, pursue the so, PhD. Yeah. So I think I'm addicted to learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first year of teaching, um, I actually had a newborn, um, married quite young and 
<laughs> graduated with him big in my belly and I took my first teaching position and, um, you know, I worked actually at a Title I school. Most of my students were English language learners. Um, at that time, I wasn't working with students with more significant disabilities, although I had a few with cognitive impairments. Um, and I just recognized I have no idea how to support these students. Like no one taught me anything about working with English language learners. Mm-hmm. So I went back to school that summer, <laughs> got my English, started on my English language um, endorsement and then the next year, I moved into a program um, that was more more supportive of students with more significant disabilities. And that's kind of where I remained the rest of my teaching career. And from mm-hmm. there, I decided, I don't know how to support these students. My education <laughs> didn't really train me. So I went back to mm-hmm. school, got my master's degree with an assistive technology certificate. Um, and then implemented all that I knew from that. And I thought, you know, what we really don't know. We really mm-hmm. don't know how to support children who use AAC. I wasn't mm-hmm. taught that even in my severe disability kind of focused curriculum. Um, and I mean, I was introduced to it, but I still had no idea how to actually help them learn how to communicate. Um, right. and, I, and I also was like, and no one taught me how to work with paraeducators. Mm-hmm. Why? Like, why not? <laughs> I'm working. That's like where I spend most of my time. And so I just kind of decided um, that I wanted to pursue a PhD And my idea originally was that I would pursue a PhD when my children were like middle or high school. And that both my husband and I were on board with that. I was like, I want to do this in the future. And then I just kind of got curious a few days and I was like, well, I wonder what programs are out there and started looking into programs. And, and I told my husband about what I'd found and he was like, yeah, we're not doing that. Remember until they're in middle or high school. And I'm like, okay, yeah. Okay. So and then he came home from work. I think he had a particularly rough day at that point in time. He was working mm-hmm. in the construction industry and it can be <laughs> mm-hmm. very up and down. Um, and he came home and he said, you know, if you really want to do this, like, why are we waiting? Um, you know, our kids are not going to be easier in middle school. In some ways, they'll be harder. And in hindsight, I'm like, this was actually a very wise choice. Um, and so I kind of just pursued what what would what it take to get a PhD. And I really knew nothing about it. Um, Mm -hmm. When I talk to people now who've applied for PhDs and I talk to my own students who applied for PhDs, I applied to a singular program. I knew exactly what I wanted to study. Um, I knew the funding was appropriate for what I needed to be able to pull it off with my family and kind of the stars all aligned and I got to study what I love for pay, (laughs) which, (laughs) you know, really being a professor is sort of um, permanent learning, right? Like you you are paid to constantly discover new knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was Very sort true. of a way to feed that addiction, I guess, that I had, which I guess if you have to be addicted to something, learning's probably an okay one. <laughs> <laughs> probably. <laughs> Although my, my wife would say that if, if I buy another book and bring it into our house, <laughs> she's going to divorce me. Well, you we could do- use the library. That's an alternative. You see. True. True. I, we, <laughs> Just as an aside, we bought a townhouse and mm-hmm. just moved. So we down downsized and she came in uh, after we'd moved in and I still had boxes to unpack. And she came in and looked at me and she says, I have counted. You have 65 boxes <laughs> of books that you have not opened. Yeah, I think my so, dad bought every Tom Clancy book and when my parents <laughs> moved and... 
then kind of move towards retirement. My mom was like, we're not moving these boxes again. Mm -hmm. You read the book once, you never touch it again. He's like, well, if I get dementia, maybe I'll want to read it again and I won't remember the book. (laughs) And she's like, no, that's not a good reason. He never goes to the library. Like he just Mm -hmm. buys every book he ever wants to read. And he's a very avid reader. She finally convinced him. I think she just had to try a lot of different tactics. She finally convinced him he's a he's a veteran um, mm-hmm. to donate it to the to the um, to the veterans hospital. Yeah, and he was awesome. like, "Okay, I can I can be okay for with that. that. Books are in a good place. Yeah, that's, <laughs> someone that's who's great. interested in that will read them. Yeah, yeah." <laughs> well, so you get the PhD and and you land at at Michigan State. Yeah. And, and so where did the, in, I know the interest in working with these children, Yeah, where did the interest in telepractice come? So in my, um, in my dissertation work, I was really wanting to provide a training format for paraeducators um, so that they could learn how to best support children with complex communication needs. So we call these programs communication partner training for those who aren't really mm-hmm. that familiar with AAC. Um, I wanted to create a format that was going to be accessible to people in various locations because I know that lots of places don't have, for example, an assistive technology specialist or a speech language pathologist who has expertise in AAC. How are we going to get the knowledge to those who need it if it's not kind of available virtually? Mm-hmm. So I did kind of the first steps in my dissertation. The training itself was provided online, but all of my data collection and kind of work was in the classroom still, videotaping in the classrooms. That was kind of the first mm-hmm. sort of piece of it. Like, I want this to be available in a format that anyone can get access to. And I recognize online isn't perfect, but across the U.S., you know, for most people, they can they can get access, especially if they work at a school because they all have internet access. Um, and so kind of from there, it morphed into other things. Now we're, you know, starting to do data collection in homes because I ended up, um, even though my background's in special education, I ended up in a department um, that focuses on human development and family studies. And I'm doing kind of the disability work in that department. But I started to recognize, Mm -hmm. wow, really, we should be exploring all the different environments, not just educational ones. And I was in a department that would be very supportive of that. um, Whereas a special education department may or may not be interested in me doing work in, in, in homes. So we start doing data collection in homes. And honestly, um, some of it was just kind of like, it can be a little bit of a logistical nightmare to travel around to different houses for these 10, 15 minute visits, right? We're just collecting data. Like we're trying to see how they interact. And so we started to, um, we started to explore like, what are other options? And it was like, well, I don't think we can do it at that time. You know, Zoom was not nearly as, as good as it is now. Right. Um, but we started that, that like started to get those itchings inside of us to be like, there's got to be a better way to make this happen that mm-hmm. works for the family and us. Because also, anytime you go into a family's home, they feel like this urge to like clean up for you, regardless of what you say. And I want to, I'm like, I want to make this as simple as possible for them. Mm-hmm. I don't want to make them put any any extra effort into this process. And so I started um, collaborating with Hedda Meaden. And she um, does a lot of work that's also telepractice related um, with this, a similar kind of population. And we collaborated on a project that was um, around early intervention. And so I started hearing a little bit more about um, 
you know, telepractice approaches and learning also that they don't always have to be, you know, via video, for example, like sometimes it's just a phone call or a text and, and she is really interested in coaching. And I was also very interested in coaching and they talked kind of about, we talked about remote options. So some of our research projects sort of naturally gathered some information about that, even though it wasn't necessarily the main focus of our research. Mm-hmm. So fast forward, um, we're doing a a project with a family, um, an aided language modeling training. We're teaching a whole family how to do this, Um, you know, and it was just like not going to be feasible to come into that home every time one of those people needed to be part of the study. It was one thing like if a parent's in a project and we're just doing it with the parent, we're going to come like once or twice a week. But when it's the whole family, it's like, oh, hey, can we just move in? Like That that was not that was not really going to be feasible. And so... At that point in time, um, Zoom was definitely becoming a little bit uh, more feasible. And we did that in there. There definitely were parts that weren't perfect. We had to ask the parent, like, you know, what did you just say there? We couldn't hear you. Um, you know, it was a little more invasive than we wanted it wanted it to be at that time. Um, and then the next project after that, um, we also did an aided language modeling project. This time we trained mom to then train the other family members. So the first one... We're training each of the family members. This one, it's more of a cascading model where we train the mom to learn how to then train the family members. And that one we also did via telepractice. The technology was just getting better. Um, We learned a few tricks like, hey, you know, maybe going to a quiet room in the house where there's not a million other people turning off TVs, things things of that nature to make our data collection easier. And we, we literally just barely start that project and then the pandemic hits everything. And mm-hmm. we're like, so, I mean, we can still do this. It's remote. And I actually right. had to fight with the university to continue to do human subjects research because all of it they, had to be stopped. They just were assuming that everyone needed to stop. No, my project was very specific that all data collection was happening remotely via Zoom. We were very specific that we were only dropping off materials and picking them up. That still became a nightmare. They're like, well, we can't let you keep going because when you pick up the the things at the end, I'm like, they can leave them on the doorstep and close the door and then we can get them and we can Clorox wipe them when we get them. Like, this is not, like, this is not difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I had to write, I think I probably spent about 10 to 15 hours just justifying that project continuing. Um, One, (laughs) because... You know, sometimes deans just need to be told, yeah, what you're thinking is not accurate. Um, right. And the family was so appreciative. I think it was just a unique time in life, right? That this family actually already homeschooled their children, except for the child with the disability. She went to a specialized school. Um, and they were just so appreciative that there was something out there. Because at that time, so many things were being shut down. And I feel like they... This was like their one link to supporting this child that was so vulnerable that was having like all of these services kind of closed for them. Right. Um, so still, whenever whenever I reach out to that family, they're just like, we're so thankful for everything that you did. And it just was really the timing was just kind of beautiful on that project. Mm-hmm. And Since then, um, I previously was doing a lot of work in schools as well, but most of that we'd still go into the schools. We felt like we had uh, less attrition when we're like physically face to face with them or able to like, you know, bring them a coffee in the morning some days when it looked like this week was really going to blow them up. And, and 
we had to sort of shift out of necessity to telepractice. Once schools reopened, mm-hmm. there was no option to have anyone outside of schools. I mean, even parents, I'm still not allowed in my daughter's school, um, except for like open house kind of events. Um, right. If I drop her off, they pick her up at the door. I don't ever get to walk inside. And it's definitely that same way in most schools for anyone outside, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if parents can't come in, certainly they're not just letting researchers come and hang out. So the telepractice approach was really the only way we, and since everything else was already happening online, all of our trainings are online. There was really no reason that we couldn't shift everything else to being online. Um, So we've been doing that and logistically, like, I do think we, we lose some of that human connection with the teachers that we're participating with. I think they feel more disconnected from us. Um, they reach out for reassurance more than they did mm-hmm. when we were in schools. Cause I think they could get that reassurance naturally from us. And, um, but it's been a way for us to continue to do research for this population where, as we wouldn't really be able to in any other way. Yeah. And, and so the, the research that you're doing is housed in the rad, correct? Yes. In rad, mm-hmm. in the rad lab. Yeah. In the rad lab. Yeah, I really like acronyms. You know, <laughs> I, they help me remember things. And I remember when I was trying to come up with a a name for my lab. Um, that mm-hmm. was something I hadn't considered. It's not really as common in special education as it is. I'm sorry, in some of the sciences. Mm-hmm. He, he's a little dog, and he thinks he owns the world. So I, I understand. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so. When I was trying to come up with names, I told my family all of the different things that I wanted my lab to sort of represent and gave them, you know, I said, I want it to be about research. I want it to have disability in it, um, developmental disability, maybe autism. And my daughter was like, you know, playing with it. And this time I think she was, gosh, eight or something. She wasn't very old. And she said, well, you could just call it the Rad Lab, Research in Autism and Developmental Disability. And I was like, that is genius. (laughs) So it was sort of a team effort. Um, but I think, uh, you know, it, it, it is it is catchy. It's something people remember. Um, and I think ultimately the slogan is more valuable really than the, um, than the actual name of our lab, which is um, supporting children with disabilities, their families, and their educational teams. And I really think about mm-hmm. that really starting with the child. Like ultimately everything we do, we want to support the child. Right. The family is like their longest term kind of partner in life. Um, and then their educational teams are really critical as well. But I kind of, I do think of it kind of in that sequential fashion. Um, and even when we're doing work in schools, we still connect with families and kind of get their input about what we've done. Um, if they think it's made a difference, you know, kind of social validity measures, but also finding out from them kind of what is important. And I, if I were just to do work in schools, I still think I would be asking families what they think about the work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think really where naturally where I've landed at Michigan State University is such a beautiful place to be able to do that work and still really involve the families and help help support them as well. I mean, they're they're doing a lot of the hard lifting, um, both figuratively and literally sometimes uh, right. for this population. And so... I want to do whatever I can to kind of make their burdens lighter. So talk about some of the research and the outcomes that you're seeing and, and maybe describe how those services are delivered as you're collecting data. Yeah. 
Um, so one of the projects um, that I that I mentioned and alluded to is a project that I have federal funding from the U.S. Department of Education. And we created mm-hmm. a training program for paraeducators um, with um, training and coaching support also coming from the teacher. So both the para and the teacher are getting trained, but really the implementer is that paraeducator with the child. And um, all of the training is available online. Um, They take the training. Because of our design, we do a lot of data collection before they do training, during Mm -hmm. training, during coaching, and then after they're done with training. Um, But ultimately, what we're seeing is that paraeducators are providing um, better opportunities for children to communicate, more opportunities. Um, They're... They're waiting longer for the children to communicate. A lot of times they like to fill the space, Mm -hmm. which I understand because I'm quite talkative. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. know, it's hard to be quiet sometimes, especially when a child has a difficult time communicating. You know, that's that awkward silence that occurs is difficult. Um, They they tend to be honestly pretty um, responsive partners. So they tend anytime the child communicates, they do tend to respond to that. Um, Mm -hmm. But maybe being a bit more sensitive to what actually counts as communication. So maybe responding more to those nuanced um, communication, you know, the child reaches for something, you know, instead of like being like, no, we're playing with this. It's like, oh, did you want to play with this instead? (laughs) Right. So kind of recognizing that as communication, not as a behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, we've also seen a a huge change in the number of um, models of AAC that they've done. So that's just not something that has trickled down perfectly in classrooms. Um, We see speech-language pathologists doing great modeling. We see many family members who are trained by speech-language pathologists, particularly in the private sector, um, Mm -hmm. you know, doing some modeling. But we don't see it necessarily happening in all classrooms or in all situations or settings. And so that's been a really big change. And it's so exciting to see how that shifts the child's communication. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that we measure is the frequency of their communication. Um, but we still have yet to kind of best capture um, how much more complex their communication becomes. Um, you know, are they communicating more symbols, for example, within their AAC system? Are, are there, um, is their communication including um, more than one word now, for example? And so we're seeing a lot of great things and, Of course, we're working with preschoolers, so they're also adorable, which makes doing any kind of data collection much more enjoyable. Um, And they do funny things and silly things. And just seeing them having a really good time learning how to communicate is amazing. Um, I think the other thing that I've kind of seen um, through some of our research in schools is there's such a push and an emphasis for academic learning. And I think that that's really, really important. But I don't think people Mm -hmm. understand how critical it is if you want someone to communicate, to give them something that's motivating to communicate about. Now, some kids are going to be very motivated to talk about the ABCs. That's Mm -hmm. their thing, right? They want to talk about it. They want to talk about every book that has the ABCs in it. They want to tell you what letter comes next. They want to sing the song. But other kids are going to just be like, no, I I like dinosaurs. Why why Mm -hmm. can't we do this around dinosaurs? So one of the things that our intervention really focuses in on, too, is making sure that it's motivating for the child. And I think um, during the pandemic, I did a project with Elizabeth Biggs and a few other colleagues. um, And we um, surveyed 
um, SLPs all over the country that had shifted to telepractice, um, working with that population of, you know, child, ch- child age. We had SLPs who are in school settings, who are in private settings. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the things that we did recognize from that is how much they felt like they had to pick activities that would grab the child. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, of course, because they're going to communicate when it's motivating. But that became even right. more critical when they're on the other side of the telepractice screen and you're on this side and it's like, we have to do something to get this child to be interested. And even just thinking back to a friend who um, was teaching, I think kindergarten during the pandemic, she just kept saying how every day she put on bright lipstick and she always (laughs) had her nails polished really bright. And her background had all these colors. She's like, I have to be as exciting as possible because I'm competing with what they see on a tablet. I'm competing with what they see on a TV, you know, yeah, for a child, you have to be as exciting as blippy, right? Yeah, <laughs> for a child, telepractice. They're, they're only like connection kind of to what, what is telepractice is like, Oh, we're, I'm on TV right now with someone and they better be just as exciting as what I get to see on TV. Um, you know, I think we could maybe overblow that sometimes and be a little mm-hmm. too wild, but um, you know, we it can't just be it it can't just be status quo. They really had mm-hmm. to get creative and had to come up with activities that were going to engage the children. Um, yeah, and and then also doing lots of coaching. A lot of right. them were talking also about how critical it was to involve the family member, and I think that was a hard ask for a lot of families. You know, they're shifting as well, and they're trying to work from home, and there's other children, and there's pets, and you know, kids are screaming on this side of the room and it's like, and you want me to do your job? Like that's how some (laughs) families viewed it. Um, But even from that project, I think a lot of the, the speech language pathologists just kept emphasizing how much um, they kind of learned about their, the children they served because they got to see them in the home environment, Mm -hmm. Um, how much they recognized the value of involving families more and how that was something they wanted to take back after the pandemic, even if they didn't continue with telepractice. Because, for example, if they're in schools, they wanted to figure out ways in which they could engage families to have that carryover and that generalization to the home setting. So I thought that was a really exciting piece of what came out of the pandemic. I mean, it, I'm sure a lot of people could argue all the terrible things that happened during the pandemic. Sure. But I do think there were some actually some really beautiful things that happened as well. And mm-hmm. I think... Um, recognizing the value of telepractice is one of them. Um, Another project that I'm working on actually currently, and we sort of did the data collection for this last, like last winter, this past winter. So uh, maybe late fall into the winter. And we were um, interested in the experiences that families of children with medical complexities have had. And one of the things we were interested in, because it was kind of during still the COVID period, um, which I keep thinking to myself, is it going to go away? <laughs> it will. It'll go away. This summer it'll be gone, right? It'll just disappear. Um, sure. <laughs> but we were really interested, you know, to find out like what what did it look like? What, how did your care shift for your child during COVID? And one of the things that pretty universally um, we've learned from that study, which was both surveys and interviews with families, is how valuable telepractice was to them, which I was not expecting. I was thinking, man, these are children with really complex needs. But I think mm-hmm. what I wasn't thinking about is how 
amazing these caregivers are. They know their kid inside out. They know if their kid has an infection because Mm -hmm. of the way that they start whining or, you know, Mm -hmm. nope, they usually laugh and they haven't laughed in two days or they're sleeping more. Um, And a lot of them just said, you know, we spend so much time traveling to appointments and to be able to do some appointments that are just kind of like that three-month check. Okay, tell me what's weird. Do this, does the medication seem to be working? Where they physically don't really need to have hands on the child right. via telepractice is like just a lifesaver to them. Mm-hmm. It saves them like a half day off of work. And you know, and their finances are strapped not because they, they don't have a lot of money, but because all of their money goes into the supports and services that really need to happen for that child. So reducing some of that, I think was important. I think one of the parents suggested that um, they could do telepractice, you know, say like they met quarterly with the doctor, they could do a telepractice visit for half of them. Mm. If they needed to see a doctor, like every six months, maybe the six month mark could be a telepractice and the year mark could be in person, you know, kind of a, a mixture of both telepractice and in person to get kind of the best of both worlds. And of course, if their child has like an acute need, they would just go to the hospital. Right. But, um, but telepractice had kind of a nice, a nice, um, space there. And I, I know even for myself, you know, I never really considered telepractice as an option for care for my own children or my, or myself. But during the pandemic, my daughter got a weird rash on her stomach and I was pretty sure that it was X, Y, Z. Right. And I was like, what I'm, it's going to, I don't even think we can get into the doctor. It was still dirt. Like when everything was pretty much shut down, like you had to be having mm-hmm. an active heart attack for anyone right. to see you. And, and my insurance had said, Hey, you can do telepractice visits for free, like no copay. And I'm like, well, well we're going to try that. Cause otherwise she's going to get this rash. And it's going to just be worse and worse and worse. And, you know, I'm going to be searching Google and going down a rabbit hole and probably treating her incorrectly. Right. We just, <laughs> log on to a telepractice visit. I like hold her belly up to the screen. And I said, this is what it looks like. And here's what it, you know, what she's complaining about and this and that. And I'm like, and I'm pretty sure this is the medication I need. And he's like, spot on. You got it. That's what you need. He's like, if it doesn't work, you call me back in a few days and we'll, we'll see if it's, you know, maybe something else is actually what's going on. He's like, you know, some things are difficult to do via telepractice. He's like, I'm pretty sure this is what this one is. I think it ended up being ringworm. So it was like a pretty, a pretty obvious thing that could be addressed uh, via telepractice. And I was just so grateful. I was like, well, I wouldn't want to wait for this. I mean, yeah, she's, she's not an acute danger, but no one wants a, wants a toddler running around with ringworm on their stomach, infecting the whole family during a pandemic. So I have a version of that with my sister. Who's a nurse. (laughs) I call, I video call her. Exactly. And I, I, I need to take her in or not? Unfortunately, I don't have a person like that in my family. They all decided to go into business, which is very unhelpful when it comes nope. to anything practical. Very true. <laughs> um, although they do sometimes tell me when good deals, you know, go on sale because one of them works for General Mills. He's like, hey, wait to buy this until this date. Then it will be on sale at your store. I'm like, well, that's great. You have a cereal um, hookup. Cereal, yeah, yeah. cereal hookup. That's but, you cool. know, that's not nearly as helpful maybe <laughs> It's like mm-hmm. a, med- a medical person in your family. Um, yeah. So I think for all of those reasons, telepractice has sort of hooked me. Um, yeah. You know, it, it can't do everything. And I don't think it pretends to do everything. But it definitely has a place in, in the field. And I think, you know, the pandemic has sort of taught us 
that it also should be something that could be billable for many types mm-hmm. of services. And sure. I know that that's you know been been a possibility during the pandemic, but there was some question as to whether or not that would continue. And I guess my hope would be that in cases where it's better for the child, better for the family, um, you know, a, a good situation, like why not? You know, why sure. not do that? Um, you could still have them go do lab works and have that come back to your office and still talk about those things. Um, but I think it, it really makes eases, eases a lot of the burdens that families are facing. And I think too, just as the pandemic, um, continues, a lot of families, especially those with children who are immunocompromised and very complex, mm-hmm. like the children in my medical complexity study, they don't, they don't want to go to any medical facility if they can avoid it. Right. You know, it's right. like a germ factory and it's like, my kid wasn't that, that kind of sick before I came here. And now they're this kind of sick and that kind of sick. Um, And it's a very scary thing for them. And I think the pandemic has just made that even scarier. Um, But it was something they experienced before. And the fact that telepractice has opened doors for them to be seen in alternative ways, I think, has really been a good thing for those families. Yeah. And something that you talked about, too, that I think is an underutilized area of telepractice is training other professionals and collaborating with other professionals. I think we always just think of the client or the student being like our end user or end consumer of it. But I think, you know, it's the whole like teaching a man to fish versus giving him a fish. If we just help that child, that's all we help is that child. And they have to keep coming back to us if we have an area of expertise, but by training those paraprofessionals and pair, I, um, I've worked in schools and my husband works in schools. I have a sister-in-law living with us that works in schools and the level of experience with a paraprofessional varies so much so much. It can be someone who like they graduated from high school and had an interest in this and got a Mm -hmm. job to someone that does have a degree or has other training. And so I think the not assuming that people know what they're doing (laughs) when, Mm -hmm. when it comes to the paraprofessionals and really having a targeted and systematic way to train them because most of that, most of their training is on the job training. So that's, I think is such a great model. Yeah. And I think within schools, you know, it used to be this model of like, okay, we have someone struggling with a specific student or a specific skill in the classroom. We're going to send our district person over there to observe a half a day, da, 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 da. And then they'll have a meeting in the afternoon after school and they'll come up with solutions. Like telepractice can be implemented in schools in a way that they do some observations. Okay, show me what's happening. They hop on a video that person's in the classroom and then they can pop in another classroom. I think it just has made things so much more efficient and it's such a cool tool for coaching, you know, that you can record something, send it to someone, and then you can Mm -hmm. jump on and have a conversation about it and they can share different points and say, Hey, you know, look here when you were doing this, what if you tried this next time? Um, Mm -hmm. I I think it's going to be more utilized in the future The thing that I will say is I don't think schools think of it as telepractice. (laughs) I know when I first was learning about these techniques, I was just like, no, this is just um, online training, online coaching. You know, telepractice was sort of like something that only happened in the medical field. Mm -hmm. I think that's changing and shifting some in part because we have, you know, um, related service providers that are part of medical kind of training in Mm -hmm. schools. And so they're Mm -hmm. shifting us away from that. But I think those who are doing this work might have to sell it using slightly different terms, depending on what setting they're going to. 
Like, hey, what if we jumped on Zoom and did a collaborative meeting? Or what if what if I did my observation via Zoom? And then we mm-hmm. had a conversation, you know, later in the afternoon. Um, rather than, you know, and I don't think people always use the term telepractice, but I know in the literature we do. And I, I wonder right. sometimes, is it getting into the hands of those who need it most when we use a term that they might not resonate with? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, you know, we're both speech language pathologists and uh and so telepractice is is sort of the term that that yes. we use but yeah i think that's one of the challenges right now is that there's so many different terms used to describe what that is yeah you know delivering those services using telecommunication technology yeah. um and i think it ends up being a little confusing to the consumer sometimes yeah. uh, okay. of what it is so, yeah. and I know a lot of, t- you know, before a lot of people were using the term telehealth, I do like mm-hmm. telepractice better. I think, you know, it expands what you, what, what you think of when you hear that term. Um, whereas mm-hmm. telehealth for sure makes me just think of like, oh, when I need to talk to the doctor, maybe yeah. a nutritionist, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, maybe a right. health coach, but not, you know, not educationally. Um, yeah. I think too, with the, uh, with the pandemic, you know, because so many schools were just delivering services online whether that was a good thing or not for some children is still debatable. Um, But I think, uh, you know, perhaps using the terminology that they use, like online learning or, Mm -hmm. you know, Zoom class, or I don't know, whatever terms they were using might help them recognize the benefits of it. But for certain, I think telepractice is completely useful when we're talking about adult populations. Um, You know, once we're, once we're starting to talk about trying to engage a child that's three years old, on a screen, it gets challenging unless you use that coaching model, right? You're coaching the family member. Um, and then they're the ones kind of, you know, hooking the child into the activity, um, from their side. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a cool way for me to do the work that I want to do, um, reach the people that I want to reach. And now we're starting our next year, we're doing our project again, training paraeducators in schools. And because of telepractice, we're able to recruit from all over the U S that to That's me is great. beautiful. Like sure. I want to help people in Michigan. Um, but the school districts kind of, you know, can get a little sick of us. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to just help the families that are like in my proximity and, you know, in the vicinity. Right. I want to help anyone who's passionate about supporting these children. And if that needs to happen in Louisiana or Minnesota or mm-hmm. California, I want it to happen there. Um, so that part of it makes me really excited. It makes me definitely want to continue my work in this area. Well, that is exciting. And, and another way to just keep expanding what you're doing and reaching yeah. more people, like you're saying, yes. which in turns helps more children in the yeah. long run. Yeah. Well, Sarah, I think it's time. Uh, we want to be cognizant of your time and not uh, be too stingy with your time. Uh and so this is the most important time of the podcast. Um, I need you to choose A, B, or C. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just pick one? You don't tell me what they're for? There, we have some questions for you. <laughs> this oh. is called our moment of Zen. How about C? Ooh, the C list. Yeah. Okay. okay. So this is our version of the Proust uh, questionnaire. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> And you may have kind of answered some of these already, but we can hit on hit on them again. Uh, where did you grow up, and how did that affect who you became? 
Hmm. I grew up in the Phoenix area and um, I would say it totally affected me because I ended up not wanting to go to recess, hung out with children with um, disabilities, learned about AAC, got excited about this field in general in kind of a very non-threatening way um, and became really comfortable with children of all abilities. So yeah, I don't know if I would have grown up somewhere else, maybe it would have been too cold and I still would have wanted to go inside. That's what I was going to say. And then you moved somewhere that, that actually has winter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. I, th- I think it, I think it definitely influenced who I was. So growing up in a desert forces you inside and you have to have something to do. And that yeah. led, so that was Kim, the greatest classroom. I, I live in southern Utah. Kim's living in the to desert St. now. George. So we live okay. in the desert. I'm familiar with the. It's the opposite. You go inside because it's too hot instead of it's too cold. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if money wasn't a factor, what would you do with your time? Whew, I would spend it outside. Um, I really, really enjoy hiking and just being in nature, seeing birds, looking at wildflowers. Mm -hmm. Um, I also really love traveling and I definitely have not seen enough countries. Um, But ultimately, I guess I'd probably want to hang out with my husband and my children more. So maybe we could just hang out more outside. That's that's good. (laughs) In other countries. In other countries. (laughs) There's still a lot of the U.S. I want to see as well, but. Sure, sure. Um, what was the last thing you searched for on Google? Probably, that's a good question. Probably a term I read. You know, I think it was actually, I was coding an interview and someone gave me the the name of their child's disability. Uh-huh. It was a medical term. And I was like, I have no idea what this is. <laughs> and so I looked it up. I think it was something about like a, a non-acute a or... hematoma or something Mm -hmm. um which ended up being like a brain bleed that had no explanation (laughs) but like the the whole term i think was like four words long and i'm like i don't i kind of think i know what this means (laughs) but i also don't know and i need to find it out so yeah i look up a lot of medical terms that's what everyone does (laughs) jump on google let's figure it out first and yes and then we can make a decision um next question is what do people misunderstand most about you about me or my work? About you. Oh. I think they assume because I'm talkative and bubbly that I'm an extrovert. Mm. But I actually do enjoy my solitude as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that's one reason why being a professor has been a good match for me. Like, I don't, I'm not shy. I can talk to people about things I'm passionate about for days on end. Mm-hmm. Um, but after a while, I need a little break and I need to kind of go in a room and write for a while or something, you know, right. <laughs> read a book or you know, Netflix or take a nap or yeah. Yep. So, so my, my husband used the term the other day of an omnivert. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think ambivert's been used to or introverted extrovert. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I get like when I teach, for example, I get very, um, I get, I feel rejuvenated from that in some mm-hmm. respects, but then I also kind of need my alone time afterwards. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I usually actually plan my office hours right after because then I don't have any meetings scheduled, but my students hardly ever come to office hours. <laughs> and they certainly don't want to come to office hours after they've just seen me for hours. So That's right. Yeah. That's a good <laughs> so strategy. Like, I've been you for three hours. I know I don't need to see you again. I'm going to have uh, to use that. Just yeah. <laughs> have office hours so right after you lecture. 
yeah, just schedule a meeting with me later. Or sometimes they'll ask a question, like follow me back to class, back to my office after class. But right. Yeah. I definitely need my downtime as well. So I'm, I'm, you and I are very similar in that way. (laughs) Um, What is a common myth about your job? Mm. Mm. That's a great question. What's a common myth about my job? Um, Or common myth about. I guess that, I guess, you know, some, for some people, they might think that being a professor feels very prestigious, Um, but there's a lot of self doubt that goes into it. I think people who are in the field definitely know that, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of like, I don't really think I can hack this. I'm not sure if I can cut it out, you know, do what's, do what's expected of me, what people are saying of me. And when I look at myself and stand out and like, like I see the work that I've accomplished, I'm like, well, of course I'm amazing. Like logically I can of think course. about that, but in my mind, I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not good enough for this. And I, I hear that right. a lot in academia. Um, there's also, true. yeah, there's also like a huge, um, it attracts perfectionists, right? You know, it's, it's a field in which you want to do your very best and you're always wanting to learn and you have a lot of drive and ambition, but you also might second and third and fourth guess like the choices <laughs> that you're making. <laughs> And overanalyze things. So I've had to do some. I've had to do some work to find a healthy way to do academia, and I think that's true for a lot of people um, in this field. So for anyone considering it, it's possible. But yeah, it's challenging. It is challenging. I was. <clears throat> we were mentioning the other night, uh, the other day on another episode, that uh, the uh, U.S. Department of Labor just passed a couple months because a colleague was telling me about it listed the the le- least stressful jobs mm. and professor was number one as the least stressful least stressful they didn't ask professors then when they, did no, they didn't ask yeah basically what you're saying is i'm spot on about what i just told you what they yeah. everyone thinks that's super easy think, back. yes yes they think it's yeah, yeah. but i you, think that's that's the that's the trick of it right mm-hmm. like we get to decide our destiny in the in the field, but there's all these pressures for tenure and to get grants and to produce right. really high impact um, research. Mm-hmm. But that 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 pressure kind of comes externally, but it, then it like gets internalized mm-hmm. to you, and you're like, if I don't if I don't do all of this like four hundred percent, I'm not I'm not really good enough to be in this field. Right, and I think also like different, you know. Everyone is sort of at a different, has a different makeup of their life outside of academia. Mm-hmm. Right. And some are perfectly happy devoting all of their time and energy into their job. But that's, mm-hmm. that's not the reality for others. Like, you know, I have a family. I am a mother. I am a wife. Um, right. I want to do really great research, but I also don't want that to be the only thing that defines me because it isn't. Sure. sure. So. You got it. That, that whole uh, work life balance we've been yeah. talking about you know yeah. and it, and so it changes your life changes so much like especially when you have children that, that work-life balance is something you're always tweaking mm-hmm. that what worked when they were toddlers or early elementary is does not work when they're in high school for example you know i find Very myself true. spending way too much time now in life ferrying my children different places and i'm like say, i'm in the car. my mind <laughs> I am not being productive. I'm just driving people places. And so constantly like, you know, figuring out how to do that well. So it's like, okay, which task can I do 
mm-hmm. in between drop-offs where I have 30 minutes in the car? Or is that the time where I spend like doing something for myself to feed my own soul, you know? Right. So yeah, it's, it's exactly. a, yeah, it's a, cre- it's a creative, uh, big balance you got to figure out. And it's like you're saying, it's, it's always changing and yes. adapting. Yes. Um, let's see what challenge in life shaped you the most. Mm. Mm. I mean, in part motherhood, but I'm going to explain because I have a caveat. Um, when I had my second child, I had postpartum depression. And that experience changed me a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I became kind of hypervigilant to my mental state because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I didn't want to go back there. Right. It was a very clear like cause. Like I had a baby. My hormones were completely out of whack. I was not healthy. I went and got the help that I needed, but I didn't really get to the underlying cause of why that's where my body went as a default, right? When it was right. going through some stress. And so um, since then, I've had other instances where I've experienced depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And it really has changed who I am as a person um, because I think I, I used to be much more upbeat and optimistic. And I thought that's who I was as a human, but it was kind of like my facade that I put up so that everyone would think that I'm doing fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, once you experience depression, you kind of have to have to be real and say, you know, I might not be fine. And it's okay if people know that because no one's going to help you if they think you're fine all the time. Um, I still I still remember a, a mental health professional and friend looking at me and saying, Kim, Sometimes the therapist needs therapy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm grateful because I have a husband. He tends to be a little too blunt sometimes. But when it comes to my mental health, him just mm-hmm. saying like, you know, kind of atrocious things like um, at one point when I was experiencing postpartum, he was really trying to figure out like what is going on, what's happening. And I kept calling him the time mm-hmm. I took a year off from teaching and I was doing in-home daycare. So it really wasn't a year off from teaching, but I had a brand new baby. I was doing daycare in my house. And it turns out that I'm amazing at letting people make messes in my school classroom, but not my house. (laughs) And it was very stressful for me. And then I was experiencing depression. And he just kind of asked me, you know, are you like that mom that drowned her kids? And I was like, I mean, I know you're like, he is the biggest jerk ever. I can't believe he would say that, right? Like in hindsight. That's, that's going to the extreme, right? Yes. And I honestly, at the time I just said, I don't know. And that's when Mm -hmm. I knew, like he asked a question that I should absolutely be able to say 100%. Well, of course not. And today Mm -hmm. I can say that. Right. But at that moment in time, I was like, honestly, I don't know. Like, I hope not, but I wasn't in a bad place and I didn't know if I was going to be healthy again. I couldn't picture that in my life. So I'm grateful that I have a partner that, you know, is able to be super blunt about my mental health when he needs to be mm-hmm. and get straight answers for me. Like, you know, knowing that if he asks that horrible question mm-hmm. that any pause is like, okay, we need, we need to get some help right now. So, and I guess, you know, that process also led me to, you know, really great mental health professionals um, who I've then experienced telepractice with, you know, since mm-hmm. that time. Mm-hmm. Um who've helped me kind of find a better, yeah, better balance in life. 
think it gives um, you more empathy for what we see parents go through yeah. too. Yeah. That, you know, we work a lot with parents and mm. coaching them to how to interact with your kids. And there's lots of things that are going on behind the doors that nobody sees and being able to be empathetic with that with yeah. families, I think. I think it's definitely given me, um, a lot more drive to figure out ways to find better solutions for families who have children with really complex needs mm-hmm. who are really caring for them all the time. Right. You know, that two hours of respite is not sufficient. Like they will burn and that child is not going to be okay if they're not okay. Yeah. Right. You know, all parents need to be kind of mentally healthy to do a good job, but it is so much more critical for a parent who is literally spending all of their time um, giving to that child. So, yeah, so it's definitely, it's shaped, it's shaped some of the things I'm interested in, how I think about them. Um, yeah, that's probably a way longer answer than you were looking for. (laughs) That's fine. That's good. Yeah. Um, when are you most productive? Um, when I lock myself in a room, (laughs) I don't really lock myself in, like there's not, you know, just physically shutting the door. And, um, bottle of wine, (laughs) you know, there's no wine actually. It's usually a big glass of water, maybe a diet Coke. If I'm rewarding myself for how much I've accomplished. Um, that's one of my contingencies that I use. Like, Oh, if you get to this point of the day and you've really done a great job, although I will say I've been on sabbatical and I've overused it. I really haven't been as (laughs) as productive as I thought I would be. And I'm like, I still deserve a diet Coke. I'm on sabbatical. Um, There you go. But um, you know, just when I kind of like shut out all, I turn off the email, I just ignore other things and I'm just sitting there writing. I find, I didn't know that that would be the case. And it's, it's mm-hmm. a good thing because I'm a professor and writing is a big part of what you do. Um, but I didn't mm-hmm. think I would be able to kind of find that beautiful place where writing became like really kind of exciting and rewarding mm-hmm. just intrinsically to me. And I, I think yeah. that's great. And, and I, I know exactly how you feel yeah. uh, when you can find that, that space to just do it. Yeah. But, you know, what I've always um, been fascinated with is, is people that are in academia, how many of them hate writing? Yeah. And I will admit that I was struggling with it quite a bit early on. I think some of that came with self-doubt and I was like, I wasn't very good at it because I didn't have the, that 10,000 hour rule going for me yet. Right. I was still, mm-hmm. I was still becoming an expert in writing. I don't know that I've gotten there yet, but I'm much more mm-hmm. efficient now. And I would talk to professors who were like, "Oh, I can write, you know, a page in a half an hour." And I'm like, "What on? No, there certainly that has to be terrible <laughs> writing because there's no way that you can do that." Um, and I talked to other people, and I had a really fantastic mentor, kind of early in my career, um, who just really made me set set um, goals, made mm-hmm. me be accountable for the goals that I had set. Um, mm-hmm. For me, it was best to track how many hours I was spending writing. And that really helped me also think about like every hour I spend, I'm getting closer to that 10,000 hour rule, right? Like that I'm going to mm-hmm. be an expert that, you know, I'm going to be the Michael Jordan of writing if I spend <laughs> enough time doing it. That's right. And turns out that that's true. That to be a good writer, you have to write. And you can do some bad writing to lead to good writing, right? But Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even something, I would try different things like, um, you know, I'm not feeling very motivated today. I'm really struggling to get into this. 
I'm going to start with editing the references in, you know, something that I'm already working on. And then it would just kind of lead me into that mo- that um, that behavior momentum would kind of lead me into being like, I can totally take this on now. Or, <laughs> or I'd go through and it's like, okay, I have to edit this paper based on reviewer two's feedback and reviewer right. two is always the nasty one, right? So you're like, really right. reviewer two? Well, maybe I start with reviewer one's comments. Like they <laughs> suggested a title change. So I start there and I'm, I get to a comment and something I need to change. And I'm like, you know, that's feeling kind of personal and I can't tackle that yet. I'm not ready. So I skip it and I move on to something else. And before I know it, I've been writing for two hours and I'm ready to tackle that super personal thing because it's been simmering in the back of my mind mm-hmm. and I've been thinking about how I can approach it and how I can address it. Right. Um, I think for me, like writing is, um, you know, just like a, a time where I'm, I'm just with myself and my own thoughts and my own, um, scholarly interests and I'm able to enjoy my own company. So it's kind of, (laughs) it's kind of fun when it works out and it, and it feels good, but I definitely need to do more of it. I've, yeah, it's been, it's been a little bit harder now that I have more students that I mentor. Um, I was able to find more, um, uninterrupted time previously. Like I would sometimes have a whole day and I'm like, I'm just going to do as much writing as I can. This is going to be great. And I get home and I'm in the best mood and my husband's like, what happened? I wrote today all day long. And he's like, great. <laughs> I'm glad you're happy. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's something that is cool for me. Good. Good. I, I, I know exactly where you're coming from. Um, what's your favorite comfort food? Ooh, my favorite comfort food. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you have to pick one? No. <laughs> I would say anything um, with sugar, preferably the combination of sugar, cream, or sugar, butter, and flour. So like ice cream, okay, cakes, cookies. <laughs> gotcha. Any, any of those um, varieties. I again, you know, sometimes we use food as a motivator. Mm-hmm. Like once we've done X Y Z, we can have dessert. Or, you know, like you finish your vegetables, you get dessert. I still like. My mom ruined me. If she would have just <laughs> never made that a rule, I wouldn't feel like I have to have dessert every time I eat vegetables. Um, but yeah, definitely sugar. It's it's a bit of a problem, but you know. Good. That's it's delicious. So it is delicious. My husband calls it my crack. <laughs> because it's as addictive as crack, not because, yeah. It is addictive. Because we condone doing drugs. <laughs> um do you have a life motto or a favorite quote? Hmm. Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I would say for me, it's, it's a particular um, quote from my faith and it's uh, lay aside the things of the world and seek for things of a better. So nice. I really, I really, really like that one. Um, kind of when I'm getting caught up in my own mind and I'm, you know, not feeling good about myself or whatever decisions I'm making or not feeling like Mm -hmm. my path is going in the right direction. It's like, forget what the world tells you is success. Right. And just think, seek for things that are the best, you know, like helping other people, um, loving on my children, you know, Mm -hmm. doing, doing good deeds and service for others. And that kind of helps me recenter. So. Very good. That's a good one. Last question. 
If heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you enter the pearly gates? <laughs> uh, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That is definitely what I'd love to hear. So, Very yeah. nice. Yeah. Well, we don't think that's going to be a problem for you when you get there. <laughs> <laughs> we hope so. so we hope. We all uh, have work to do. <laughs> yes, we do. So, But how can people get in touch with you? And yeah. if they want to learn more about the rad lab or just to reach out how can they yeah. reach out to you um a few different ways we do have a facebook um at rad lab msu um and i can send that to you so you don't have to jot okay. all these down perfectly they can also email me s douglas at msu.edu and then we also have a website but i would say the facebook page is definitely more active than the website. The website is static and we update it, uh, you know, once every six months or a year or so. So if you're looking for what we're doing most, um, most recently, probably our Facebook page is the place to hang out. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us on the podcast and, and best of luck with everything. Thank you so much. Well, that was Dr. Sarah Douglas from Michigan State University. Check out what she's doing in the RAD lab, the research in autism and developmental disabilities. It's very exciting work, and I look forward to seeing everything that she's going to be doing in the future and a lot of great research probably coming out of that lab uh, for years to come. And thank you for joining us on the podcast. If you don't mind, please review, like, share the podcast. If you don't mind leaving us a five-star review, that's that's always very, very helpful for us to attract new listeners and new subscribers. And we want to reach as many people as we can. So we appreciate when you do that. And with that, have a great rest of your week and be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.